So one of the reasons why uh, I use these two questions as broad as they are, Gabby, um, is to to highlight just the very basic fact that I think a lot of times most of us feel like on some level things are getting worse, right? Because we've talked about this before, uh, news and media sensationalized, uh, and when you sensationalize and you have like an entertainment news industry that we have, um, it's mostly negative stuff, right? We mostly see uh, bad news in our media, on our phones, uh, on TV. Um, so we have the impression a lot of times, and they, uh, when asked this question, the majority of people uh, have a negative answer to question number one. So the majority of people that are asked to fill in this question give some sort of negative response, like things are getting worse. Um, but if you just notice what happens when we fill in the blank number two, that the things that we want and the way that we orient ourselves and would like to orient our personal lives, our families, our communities, and our world are overwhelmingly positive, right? And I think that that um, is a mental shift that is necessary for us to realize if we're ever to uh, navigate a world where most of the, the news and kind of like impression around us is that things are negative, while our inner like hopes for what we have for our kids our grandkids, and future generations is overwhelmingly hopeful and positive. Um, and I think that that is something um, that we can kind of maybe reshape and reframe the way we um, think about our, our world and think about the way um, we find ourselves, how we find ourselves in a climate crisis, that what we actually want and what we actually hope for is really overwhelmingly positive if maybe some of our worst moments, we would answer the first question negatively, right? Does that make sense? So um, that's kind of where I want to start on a, on a positive note. So Bob last week used Romans 8 to, uh, to give a text around uh, that you could reference when thinking about uh, climate, when you can think about nature, and frame that from a positive perspective. So I decided, well, maybe I'll do Romans 8 as well and uh, find something else in there. So I'm going to start with Romans 8. I think it's in the bulletin. Uh, you even have it on the screen. 8, 12 through 14. And it's a short text. I'll read it and then give us like a little reflection meditation on this. It says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So here, I want us to just briefly think about this text as a, when Paul says a call away from the flesh, as a call away from materiality. So the, the word flesh can be understood as um, you know, not, not your, your literal flesh, but a way from materiality, a waste economy. Uh, like Bob mentioned last week, an anthropocentric um, view of controlling life. That is a human-centered, human-focused, where humans are up here and everything else is down here to be subjected by the will of humans. Uh, Bob talked about that last week, that it is not uh, God who subjects nature against its will. It's actually, who, who is it, Bob? You never answered that question. We'll talk about it later. All right. <clears throat> but if we think about a movement of the flesh as a way to death, that is a waste economy, uh, the way that um, we understand materiality 
um, using nature and using creation uh, for the purpose of exploitation, right? We see that as a, um, one of the primary frameworks for why we find ourselves in a climate crisis today. It's actually a theology of y- being able to use nature for however we want to use it as, of seeing our, as opposed to seeing ourselves as a part of an ecosystem of sustainability in which we are intimately connected to nature as living beings, right? Uh, and so we're just now uh, w- awakening to the effects of how the climate crisis affects us as living, breathing uh, pieces of an entire ecosystem of life. So instead, Paul is reminding that life is simply the very breath we breathe. The word he uses for breath and spirit is pneuma. Pneuma means breath and spirit. So the spirit, the breath of God, is a gift from God here. So the final verse is interesting because it does not say um, all people are children of God. It just says, for who all are led by the very breath of God are children of God. And if we substitute breath for life, the breath of God is the life of God, and it is infused in all of creation, of which we are a part. And Bob mentioned, you know, Francis was one of the first who popularized the idea that the animals and the plants were brothers and sisters Uh, We're our brothers and sisters. So not only are we brothers and sisters, but the very plants and living things in our world are also brothers and sisters. So if we re-understand this last verse, for all who are led by the Spirit are called children of God. So we can read that, for all who are led by the breath of God are children of God, the life of God are children of God. So it can be seen uh, for us to intimately tie ourselves to nature, can reframe our theology for how we live in the world, all right? So that's our little med- our scriptural meditation. Um, and now we're, gonna, we're just going to talk about um, climate change and then how we, can, uh, how we can deal with the reality. So um, my title for today's sermon is Unexpected Resilience, Hope Through Grief. In his 2019 book, the uninhabitable, uh, the uninhabitable Earth, uh, made popular by the New York Magazine article. Oh, I don't even have his name here. What is that guy's name? Has anybody read that book, Uninhabitable Earth? It's a fascinatingly depressing work. You can find the, uh, the New York Magazine article on, online. I don't know why I didn't include his name. Um, it is, uh, he writes, It is, I promise, much worse than you think. If your anxiety about global warming is dominated by fears of sea level rise, you are barely scratching the surface of what terrors are possible, even with, within the lifetime of a teenager today. With recent news about melting ice in Greenland, which lost, I don't know if anybody saw, 11 billion tons of ice one day in August last month, uh, the hurricane, uh, Hurricane Dorian this week that devastated the Bahamas uh, and, you know, uh, parts of the East Coast and the fires that have been uh, recently set in the Amazon, destroying one of our planet's most vital resources and ecosystems. It's hard to establish our, our personal bearings in the midst of a crisis of this magnitude. Uh, most climate scientists um, predict that we will lose Miami and Bangladesh by the end of the century. Um, even if we stop burning fossil fuels within the next two decades, 
Uh, more than half of the carbon that humanity has exhaled into the atmosphere um, in its entire history of our planet has happened just in the last three decades. Uh, and since the end of World War II, that number jumps up to 85% just since World War II, which means that in a single generation, global warming has brought us to the brink of climate catastrophe. Furthermore, this is interesting, Bitcoin now uses more energy than New Zealand and Ireland. The cryptocurrency Bitcoin uses more energy than New Zealand and Ireland. Um, this is the same amount of CO2 emissions as one million transatlantic flights. Crazy. And this is only going to increase as the price of Bitcoin increases. It's a fascinating problem. The concentration of carbon dioxide is 408 parts per million as of 2018, which is the highest concentration of CO2 in the air in 3 million years. Humans have never lived in the kind of climate that we are currently living in. At our present rate of emissions, our carbon budget for a good um, chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius over the next uh, for the rest of the century, that window closes in four years. And most climate scientists, the Paris Agreement, for instance, says we need to keep the global temperature under two degrees Celsius. So that's what the Paris Climate Agreement says. You know, countries uh, all around the world, every country except for our own now, uh, you know, made the commitment to try uh, to take measures to keep the global temperature from uh, increasing two degrees Celsius by the end of the century, right? To keep it at 1.5, which is critical, I have a, a chart. If you go to, uh, to carbonbrief.com, there's a lot of really helpful information there. Um, but it's critically important uh, to try to stay at 1.5 Celsius degrees increase because if you hit 2 degrees Celsius or higher, um, things get much worse. So even at 1.5 degrees, uh, which would be a huge win by the end of the century, if we're able to curb uh, carbon and keep the uh, temperature at only 1.5, it would be a massive win for humanity. Um, and that still even has some devastating consequences as well. Um, even at 1.5 degrees Celsius, you can see at the bottom, um, you still have negative effects to 90% of coral reefs. And that is, that is a win for us. So at the very best, um, we're still looking at a problematic climate uh, in 80 years. I can tell by your faces this is going well. All right. Um, so to hit the brakes on at 1.5 global carbon emissions, we need to immediately begin plunging faster than they ever have, hit zero by 2050, and then go negative. So when um, you know current people are proposing that we need to be uh, carbon neutral by 2050, um, that is the goal that we really must hit uh, globally to really uh, save the, the sort of back half of our century from just real climate catastrophe. So that's, that's very important, that 2050 mark. Uh, if you notice, a lot of American politicians now, uh, Governor Jay Inslee from Washington, for instance, says, uh, you know, carbon uh, neutral in the U.S. by 2045. So that's often kind of what you hear. 
Um, meat consumption is certainly a huge problem. Um, it's typically been a problem in the U.S. and the West where we eat lot, a lot more meat, but as meat is becoming a, a higher percentage of the global diet, it is becoming even more problematic as we kind of near the 10 billion people mark, so as the global population increases and as sort of the meat consumption increases globally, it's going to get more and more difficult to, to feed everyone. So that's why you see a lot of the clearing of the rainforest in the Amazon, for instance. It's used to grow grain for cattle for uh, the raising of more cattle to feed a global population that is, is starting to eat more and more meat. So in most Western countries, um, scientists say beef and pork consumption needs to fall by 90% in the U.S. and U.K. 90% and be replaced by five times uh, more beans and grains by 2050. Dairy consumption needs to fall by 60%. Um, 11% of all greenhouse gas emissions... Uh, caused by humans is caused by deforestation, uh, which is comparable to the amount of uh, all the cars and trucks that drive on the planet. So deforestation is um, almost as big of a problem or as big of a problem as our transportation emissions globally, but not only because of the fires and the deforestation, and then you don't have the, uh, the carbon that the trees uh, absorb. Feeding a global population of 10 billion people is possible, but according to Professor Johim Rockström of the Post, Postdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany, um, it can only change if we change the way we eat and process food to feed a population of 10 billion people. So while everybody, like we will all be affected by climate change, uh, an estimated 1 billion people will be particularly vulnerable and uh, we could see one. Uh, we could see 143 million people completely displaced um, from their lands due to climate crisis just in the next 30 years. So 143 million people are at risk for complete displacement by 2050. So yeah, things are much worse than you think. Uh, so you might be thinking, Ryan, this is supposed to be about finding hope. This is unbelievably depressing. Um, yeah, it is unbelievably depressing, but as we've mentioned earlier, the good news is that we are waking up. And the process of waking up uh, is the process of dealing with the reality of the situation, unfortunately. And then understanding that um, I think the way that we're feeling right now, I, the way that you're probably feeling in, in this moment, um, shows that you have a care and a passion for life, right? Like, if, if, you, didn't feel, if you didn't feel bad right now, uh, there'd probably be something wrong with you, right? Like, the fact that we, we feel so heavy and we feel this weight is because we understand that life is a gift, and that's a gift that should be stewarded and, and hasn't been, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. But the fact that we feel you know, you know, depressed or sad or overwhelmed is because we have a deep care and love for, for our planet. And we have a deep care and love for what happens. So that's a good thing. And we are, wake, we are waking up to that. Um, and to show you how, much, uh, we've, how far we've come, uh, I, thought, I read, read this this week. That's crazy. In 2001... Journalists gathered at the White House for an average press briefing in the Bush White House, right? Ari Fletcher's 
commentator now on Morning Joe. I was a press secretary for George W. Bush, and he didn't have anything to announce that day. And so he started taking questions from uh, the press crew, right? Um, and so rising energy costs were a thing back in, back in 01. Um, not that I would rem- remember, but this is what I read. Um, and so a journalist asked Ari Fletcher, says, does the president believe that given the amount of energy Americans consume per capita, how much it exceeds any other citizen in any other country in the world, does the president believe that we need to correct our lifestyles to address the energy problem? You know what Ari Fletcher said? He said, that's a big no. The president believes that that's the American way of life and that it should be the goal of policymakers to protect our American way of life. Ari Fletcher, 2001. And, you know, there are some politicians that would say, yeah, still, I think Ari Fletcher's got some good points there. Um, But just to show you how far our sort of, like, public consciousness and awareness has changed in the last 18 years for the better, um, like, that is unbelievable that somebody said that um, just 18 years ago. This week, maybe you saw CNN had seven hours uh, in one night dedicated to uh, climate crisis and, and the town hall. They even had a big thing you know, behind uh, all those that are running for president, however many there are at this point. You know, climate crisis, right? So we're really beyond, I think, as uh, in the public of just calling it climate change, that we really, the public consciousness has raised to the point where we understand it now to be a climate crisis, which I think is a big It's a big mental shift uh, that has taken uh, years in the work of so many climate activists to get us to that point. You know, even the the youth movement, the Sunrise Movement, was really instrumental in even getting, uh, you know, a town hall or a debate. They didn't get the debate. The uh, the DCCC voted that down. But uh, the Sunrise Movement, which is a youth-led movement all across the nation, uh, is instrumental in getting – you know, politicians and leaders to comment publicly on the Green New Deal. I mean, they have really raised uh, this issue, and I really believe that it's, it's going to be the, the youth that we're going to look to for, for leaders uh, to continue to push this issue, to raise the, the, the public consciousness, and to get leaders to actually uh, not only change, but actually put policy uh, changes on the platform. Um, Many, many of you probably have seen a 16-year-old uh, climate activist. I have a, a photo of her, uh, Greta Thunberg. Have, has anybody seen Greta? Um, so Greta recently, she, she sailed on a solar-powered yacht. She's Swedish, sold on, uh, sailed on a solar-powered yacht uh, from, I think, the U.K. to New York. Because uh, she, she won't fly. So to raise awareness, she sailed transatlantic 15 days to the U.S. to do activism here, and she goes around and speaks. Uh, she's unbelievably uh, inspirational. If you ever, uh, you can just you know look up Greta Thunberg on YouTube. She's she's kind of an incredible person, right? Uh, she said the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have the, all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is wake up and change. Climate crisis has already been solved. We have all the facts and the solutions. All we have to do is wake up and change. So it's good that the collective consciousness of our, of our world is beginning to recognize this crisis. Uh, and we're coming around to hold leaders and public figures responsible for what they say and do. And obviously it's not great that we're, 
we're in a crisis um, or that there's, you know, really only in our country one major political party uh, talking about addressing it or that the current administration has rolled back 85 environmental regulations just in three years, 85 environmental regulations for which they're very proud, including this week, they might see the genius uh, at work, the decision to roll back energy-efficient light bulbs that nobody's asking for, right? Like regulation that nobody, nobody is asking for. Even the light bulb industry has no interest in uh, making uh, inefficient light bulbs. So, yes, there are a lot of things to fret over and to bemoan, uh, but I think if we were to ever move from uh, a sense of this honest grappling with reality uh, to hope in action, uh, you know, we first have to kind of go through the pits of despair. Rebecca Solnit says it like this, you know, an emergency is a separation from the familiar, a sudden emergence into a new atmosphere, one that demands uh, we ourselves rise to the occasion. Right? I think that's kind of where we're at. We're at an emergency point. We're at... A, uh, a moment in time where we ourselves have to rise to the occasion. Uh, so today I'm going to mention uh, a core strategy. I'm just going to briefly mention from a book called Active Hope by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone, um, in which they outline four uh, stations, or what they call a spiral, for discovering within ourselves and within our communities active hope. Uh, Joanna Macy actually believes that it is through gratitude that we can embrace the pain of our climate crisis. She writes this, A moment of gratitude strengthens your capacity to look at rather than take away from disturbing information. So a moment of gratitude strengthens your capacity to look at rather than take away from disturbing information. When you experience pain for something beyond your immediate self-interest, this reveals your caring, compassion, and connection. By honoring your pain for the world, whatever form it takes, you take seriously and allow the signal it brings to rouse you. We have to uh, have active hope uh, for our future. We have to discover an unexpected resilience within ourselves and our planet that I think we didn't know was possible. So active hope, to clarify, you know, it's not uh, hopefulness where we just decide to be optimistic about the future. Because if it's just about you know, being optimistic about the future and it's just the problem is kind of out there and we're left to say, you know, like the question earlier, you know, how, how do you feel about the future? Then I think inherently we're going to feel a little helpless, like, you know, active hope, as uh, we're talking about it this, this, this morning, uh, does not require us to be optimistic, right? It requires us to discover resiliency. So it's not saying, oh, are you optimistic about the future? No, it, it places it personally to have a, and discover an unexpected resiliency within ourselves. So we must demand the unexpected resilience that our bodies and our communities have to sustain life and to flourish. Like You have the ability to sustain life and to flourish as an individual. Um, we are part of a living ecosystem that has emerged through billions of years of evolution, and we have survived five mass extinctions. Like We are, we are a part of this ecosystem of life that has survived all of this. And it is precisely through recognizing the reality of our crisis and moving through uh, grief that we have, you know, for the extinction of animals and plants, you know, the apprehension of sacred lands, the myriad of other climate events that we hear about, that we can better understand and look at our care and passion for the world 
and for creating a more beautiful world and then move into that space through active hope. So then ra- rather than stew in sadness or grief, uh, our grief makes us realize how much love we have for life and how much God has actually given us. And like Joanna Macy said, that starts through gratitude. It starts through gratitude and moves through grief. So Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite uh, theologians, Old Testament scholar, says one of the main functions of Israel's prophets was to move the people through grief and into hope. He says hope is, a, is the decision to which God invites Israel, a decision against despair, against permanent uh, consignment to chaos, oppression, barrenness, and exile. Hope, on one hand, is an absurdity too embarrassing to speak about, for it flies in the face of all those claims that we have been told are facts. Hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion, and one, uh, one that does that when one does that only at great political and existential risk. On the other hand, hope is subversive, for it limits the grandiose pretension of the present, daring to announce that the present to which we have all made commitments is now called into question. And like Bob mentioned last week, we are all part of a living ecosystem, which uh, in the context of what uh, Walter Brueggemann is saying there, it call, that calls into question that narrative of anthropocentrism that says humans are up here and we just use everything however we want, right? We understand, we have to re-understand ourselves as a part of a living ecosystem. And I think, uh, I don't know if Bob, if you mentioned it last week, but, uh, you know, talking about this view, you know, coming in in the industrial age where we start, uh, you know, to really see this sort of like um, mass use of uh, you know, exploiting the planet's resources, uh, burning fossil fuels, and then obviously when this uh, really increases globally in the, in the 20th century, and leading us to the point that we are now with, uh, with a climate crisis uh, you know, that's virtually just you know, 100 years in the making. So from there, uh, we can, like Walter Brueggemann is saying here, call into question that narrative of, well, this is just the way it is. This is just the world we live in. Uh, you know, there's, here are the resources. There's coal. There's oil. You know, the tar sands in Canada. And that's just for us to use. That would be the, you know, one of the dominant uh, cultural narratives of consumerism, uh, materialism. And uh, from the, pers- the prophetic perspective that Brueggemann is talking about, um, the prophetic perspective is calling those systems of this is just the way it is. This is just how life is totally into question and say, no, we need a sustainable economy and a theology that uh, leads to that. So our theology is, like Bob talked about last week, an ecosystem in which we are uh, a part of life. We are part of this whole living, uh, breathing mystery. So from there, we can completely... uh, we can completely shift the narrative, and then from shifting the narrative, um, we can restore an act of hope in our lives and in our communities. Um, so I think one way of doing this, right, is uh, moving through helplessness, despair, finding gratitude in personal lives. It can be as simple as restoring ourselves to the earth and ecosystem. And next week we'll talk about um, a lot of just the like practicalities of daily life, uh, you know, as people living here in the 21st century. Um, But this restoring ourselves to the earth and restoring ourselves um, to life around us 
can be as simple as planting uh, a vegetable in the garden. The kids are out in the garden right now planting with, with Andrea. It could be sh- shopping at a farmer's market uh, to connect uh, our body and our diet to a more localized food source and to people, people that grow our food. Or it could be even cooking a meal and just just really being mindful of the food that we're engaging, where it comes from, and cooking uh, a meal. Much has been written about the fact that not only is the majority of the American diet considered uh, ultra-processed, but most of our fruits and vegetables that we find, right, they travel thousands of miles, and we rarely question, you know, where where they come from. Um, And, you know, we... All this to say is, uh, you know... We're, we're disconnected. You know, we, we live in a time where it's easier and easier to be disconnected from, from everything. You know, our, our meat is processed in uh, mass factories and then, and then wrapped in cellophane. You know, it's not like we're out there hunting. Or, you know, maybe, maybe you do that. But most people aren't out there hunting or, or raising their meat on, a, on their local farm. Uh, and all of this builds up, builds up over time, disconnecting us from our ecosystem. Uh, and now, right, it's like so easy, like I just pull open an app and I tap on my phone and pad Thai and Tom Gaz right there at my door. You know, it's just so easy for us to be even more disconnected um, from, from life and from the source. Like we don't, we don't surround ourselves. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relatively new human phenomenon uh, to not be... Uh, daily connected with the cycle of life and death, uh, having to grow our own food or gather our own food uh, to uh, have animals and, and, and deal with that. It's a, we live in such a, uh, just a relatively new experience of, I mean, obviously with, with technology now, but uh, you know, just a few hundred years ago, I, the way of human life and dealing with life and death it's just vastly different than what we understand now. And all of that disconnects us from this uh, to our connection with, uh, with nature and the reality of, of life and death. So to even think about how we can just connect ourselves through mindfully engaging with what we eat or, or how we uh, to plant or um, how much we drive – all of these little relationships can restore, uh, can restore an active hope because we're, we're consciously engaging with how we live our lives and we understand that, oh, you know what? The system in the world that we grow up in or that w- the world that we live in or grew up in um, gave us a predominant narrative. It's not the gospel. It's not truth. Like We don't have to mindlessly consume um, the world in which uh, you know, we, we observe you know, thousands of commercials that say we have to buy these products. Okay, like we can mindfully make the decision that we don't have to engage in that world uh, mindlessly. We don't have to just um, go along with the way that things are just because that's the way things are. That restoring an act of hope is being uh, called in some way or another for all of us to be prophetic. Um, that we don't have to think of the, the biblical prophets as these people that lived a long time ago and said really interesting things to call us, that we can actually uh, restore a prophetic uh, perspective within ourselves uh, for change, for change in our own lives and change for our communities. Um, and I think that is kind of the, un- um, where I use the title today, unexpected resilience, um, that we find an unexpected resilience within ourselves. 
so consumption and consumerism, uh, you know, is a dom- I, I would say it's the dominant religion of the U.S. Um, but as those as that narrative of consumption and consumerism becomes more prevalent globally, um, we have to think about uh, combating that because that is not, you know, scientists say that is not a sustainable way for our planet to survive. That, that narrative of uh, consumption and consumerism is not sustainable for our planet. So we have to find an unexpected resilience as Christians, as prophets, as theologians to... Uh, craft a new theology and a new narrative in a new way of living in our own lives. And we can, we can do that. We, we can do that. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a very positive, hopeful thing, is that that's, that's well within our means to, to do that as people, right? So may we be like prophets in exile. May we understand and recognize the crisis but find gratitude in our daily experience of our resiliency for life, our love for life, our appreciation for life, our concern for the planet, our hope for future generations, our desire for all of God's creation to live in peace. In the midst of all the dire news, may we discover an unexpected resiliency that we already have within us the life and the breath that we have been given. So let's start this morning simple. Let's start with a breath. The breath as a sign of your resiliency for life. It's primal connection to everything that we know and everything that we don't know. May we embrace our breathing and engage in an active hope of living at peace with our environment and inviting everybody to join in the movement of this spirit. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that um, the movement of your spirit, as we inhale and exhale, may we see that as a simple act of resiliency, of our resiliency for life. And through that, may we express gratitude. Then may we move into the world to understand a crisis. And as we better understand the crisis, We understand our care for the world. And when we understand our care for the world, we can do anything. That we have, we are, we have been called prophets by you. So stir within us that prophetic spirit to say, uh, the way things that people say they are doesn't have to be that way. That we are not here just to use and to consume, but we are here for life to flourish so that our kids and our grandkids and every future generation is able to flourish as well, to live life to the fullest, to have and enjoy the life that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.